This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, Show 70. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Dorkin, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with the man in yellow, Mr. Brandon Turnell. What up, Big Bird? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. You really do look like Big Bird today. Yeah, I like this shirt. It's one of my oldest shirts, but, you know, I like it. I got some sad news, though. Oh, what happened? On here. So my cat is sick. He's at the vet. Am I supposed to be upset about that? Or you should is, be is upset. that is that a three cheers moment? No, he's uh he's not feeling good. It's a it's a sad moment, but you know, he'll be okay. He's got some kind of weird eye infection, so whatever. Oh, I'm sorry. My dog yeah. went through that, so I, I feel your pain, man. I feel <laughs> there you your go. pain. Yeah. The, I've got I've I'm a little sensitive, right? Yeah, you're a sensitive yeah. guy. Sometimes you yeah. just break down crying during the day for like <laughs> You're, you microwaved your food too hot or something. I don't yeah, know. whatever, whatever. <laughs> All right, man. Well, anyway, yeah, this is the, this is, uh, is going to be an interesting show ahead, guy, Mr. Brandon Guy. I agree. I, I actually think today's show is especially, especially good for people who may or may not ever actually engage in this kind of real estate investing. Uh, we're going to be talking about subject two, but it's important because it's, it's something a lot of people throw away most of their leads that come in, whether you're a wholesaler, flipper, buy and hold, whatever. Yeah, you throw away a ton of leads. So uh, I know I do, but after this show, I'm definitely relooking at how I do all that. So yeah. Oh yeah, I, th- I think it it gives you a new perspective on some strategies that that I'd say the vast majority of real estate investors would never even consider because they they see deals that may not have meat on the bone, so to speak. But uh, in in reality, if if you know how to how to structure a deal. There's actually meat on the bone, so yeah. it's it's cool. I'm I'm excited. The show the show is uh, is going to be a, a a fairly high level one, uh, and and there's uh, there's a lot of phenomenal content. But yeah. uh, before we and jokes, before, there there are some jokes. Yeah. <laughs> so if you don't like our humor, our middle school humor, you know, we ha- we we've gotten we've gotten quite a few of those comments, haven't we? <laughs> These guys yeah, yeah. Ju- should just stop talking and joking. This and, is real estate. It's not funny. It's business. Yes. Just really, I, we're going to teach you about <laughs> cap rates today. There you go. Everybody get out your calculators. Yep. That's what real estate is. Yeah. Uh, All right. So yeah. Oh, I just got a text. How cool is that? Nice. Way to have yeah. your phone off. Yeah. Right. Way to have this. Maybe that was our, the maybe that was the music for our quick, quick tip. tip. All right. <laughs> Today's quick tip is, this is actually a really good one. We have not yet done this. If you are on bigger pockets to do real estate and to network and do deals and make money ultimately, then I want all of you guys to stop and do this one thing as soon as you're done listening to the show. Go Collaborate and listen. Are, are you seriously going to do that? <laughs> you want them to do one thing was to stop. Collaborate yeah, don't. And don't. Okay. Yeah, you're Moving done. <laughs> what's, what's the one thing? Oh, okay, vanilla rice. <laughs> the one thing is to introduce yourself to somebody that you have have been looking up to or who you've seen around the site and you you think is interesting or or is uh, has got value to add go out there if you haven't already and introduce yourself to that person and and start building your network uh if if you've introduced yourself to everyone on the site then then uh, you know your job is done and you can go retire <laughs> yeah go home 
Well, yeah. to, add, to add on to that point real quick, and I know we're going to get to the interview in a second, but there's a thread going on right now in the forums. And uh, if you're listening to this in the future, you can find it. It basically says, go in, in this thread, mention somebody who you've learned from on the site. Just go ahead and do an app mention, which tags them. Uh, you know, just tag them and tell them what you learned. It kind of is a way of giving back and saying, hey, thank you, you know, whoever for teaching me something new. So we'll go look for that. I'll put a link to that in the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 70. That I is, highly recommend doing it. That is the link. Yeah. So, All right. That's kind so of two moving quick on. tips, but whatever. Yeah. yeah, there you go. All right. So let's move on to the show. Today's show, we have a great guest for you. We've got Grant Kemp out of, uh, I believe, Dallas, Texas. And Grant is a real estate investor who has not been around that long, but in, in the short time he has, he's made a significant impact and has done a ton of business, an absolute ton of business. Uh, what's he, He's doing, what, six to 15 deals a, a month on average, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's doing a ton of deals for I've only been in this, you know, doing it for a short time. But but hey, um, but before we go on real quick, I just wanted to uh, to give a quick disclaimer. And that is anytime you're doing real estate deals, it's important that you're transparent with all the parties involved, including the lenders. Uh, that will make more sense later having to do with this strategy. But ultimately, we just want to be sure that if you're considering to do real estate deals like a subject two, which is what we're going to talk about today, that you consult a real estate attorney first. Because you do not want to accidentally break the law uh, by trying to do something that you may or may not be illegal in your area. So be smart, do your homework, and talk to an attorney. Uh, but anyway, I just wanted to add that because we want you to make sure that you uh, are doing things right and that you're doing it safe and legally so you can be as successful as Grant. Because, man, Grant is absolutely crushing it in his business, just crushing it. He's crushing it. And and he's wicked smart. Uh, so yeah. I definitely encourage you to to stop and, and pay some attention to the show. Uh, this is show 70, the bigger pockets podcast. We've got show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 70, as Brandon said. And otherwise, uh, if you want to ask Grant anything, definitely link up to him on the show notes or at his profile on the site, which we'll also link to in the show notes. If you're in the landlord game, then you know the importance of solid tenant screening. That's where rent ready steps in. Now rent ready's got an important new feature, proof of income verification. And get this, with Plaid Certified Reports, you'll see everything from income summaries to total earnings by month. Say goodbye to those gut check moments and hello to confidence in renting with RentReady. RentReady is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering a six-month plan for $1. You can't beat that. I actually don't even know how they make money doing that, but it's above my pay grade, pal. Visit RentReady.com. That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like bigger pockets, investor, like me, to get six months of rent ready for $1, which is crazy. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. 
Join today by visiting connectinvest.com slash VP, connectinvest.com slash VP. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. Uh, with that, why don't we jump in and get this thing started? Grant, what's going on, man? Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Uh, let, let's jump into this You know, right at the beginning. How'd you get into real estate? Um, I got into real estate just by kind of want, wanting to do it. I um, uh, share a... Uh, uh, story with many of the people that you have on here where the first thing I did was read Rich Dad Poor Dad and uh, it was just a nice inspirational book. It's not a how-to which a lot of expect uh, people kind of expect out of it but, but it's a good inspirer and uh, you know just kind of went on there and uh, started looking on bigger pockets reading the forums on there reading everything I could researching online and um, just kind of took that bit by bit until I was ready to kind of dive in and and grab my first deal. Nice. Nice. And what what were you doing prior to uh, real estate? I worked IT. I was uh, IT for a stock company. I did their kind of automation stuff over there. Gotcha. So decent decent amount of downtime that I had for it. So it was helpful that I could spend that time uh, researching and, and figuring things out. Cool. Nice. Nice. And and uh, you talked about why real estate. So why don't we just jump in on that first deal? How did how did you get uh, get the ball moving and just jump right in? Sure. So I guess technically my first deal was really my my primary residence. I I bought a duplex. I live in half, rent the other half out. So, uh, you know, I know a lot of people look to do that as their as their first thing. So that I did get an FHA loan for and and kind of got into it that way. Uh, my first true investment deal that was just purely investment was uh, uh, actually from my tenant uh, that I had moved into the other side. You know, they moved in here. They had a house that they were looking to sell. Uh, they were unable to sell it because of what they owed on it. And that was the perfect scenario for a subject to transaction. And that's kind of what I had been researching this whole time anyway, because, you know, when I, when I had gone into it looking for how can I get into real estate, my, my big thing was, how can I get into real estate without having any money? Yep. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that was kind of the challenge is that, how am I going to buy a house if I have no cash? So through the research, it was like, okay, well, it looks like owner financing is kind of the way to go on this, um, subject to being the, the way to acquire there. So oh, cool. Hey, um, I, I know we want to go into subject two, but I want to stop you real quick and go back sure. to what you had said earlier. Um, we, you, you talked about FHA loan lived in half mm -hmm. of the duplex. Can you kind mm -hmm. of just explain that a little bit more in depth just for people yeah. who might not know what that means? Cause I, yeah, I love that strategy. Sure. So, so FHA, if you get an FHA loan on like a single family residence, you've got to live there for, uh, eight, nine, 10 months before they can feasibly allow you to move out and turn that into a rental or something along those lines. They've got to see that you got FHA as your primary residence. Well, when you're doing a duplex, 
you are able to get an FHA loan for the entire duplex because that's going to be your primary residence. It just so happens that you're able to rent the other side out of that duplex and and turn that into a uh, 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 an income uh, for you. So you know when all is said and done, you can cut your bills down to a third of what they would have been, you know, a quarter of what they would have been, depending on what your rent can be for that other half of the, uh, of the property. And that really serves to, to help a lot. Yeah, that's cool. I, I wrote a post a while back called how to hack your housing uh, and get paid to live for free. It was all on that exact same subject. So if people want to learn was more it? about that, yeah, I'll link to it in the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 70. Uh, but yeah, I love that. And what's the down payment on an FHA loan for those who don't know? Uh, it's 3% cool. it, that, that you've got to put down. I believe it. Actually, they may go to to one and a half at this point in time. Really, interesting. I I, I think I've heard of a program out there, but three okay. percent. And y'all can correct me on on that if you know otherwise. Okay. Yeah, I know. I think I I think when I'm a, a buddy of mine did it, and it was three and a half a couple of years ago. I don't know if it's okay. still that, but yeah, it's somewhere right around there. So it's it's mm-hmm. uh, pretty low. So, um, cool. So you can buy a property for very small percentage down and end up getting the full like a cash flow appreciation benefits of the whole thing, right? Sure. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. yeah, and it and it, and it really helps out, you know, not only from uh, from the cash flow side, but even from their your tax basis side. You know, if you if you uh, get a good CPA in your corner and and look at things from that way, you know, you've got you've got some depreciations that you're, you're able to do on investment properties that you're not able to do on your uh, primary residence. So obviously, you wouldn't be able to do those kinds of things for the whole duplex, but for that half that somebody else is living on, you know, there's some there's some tax benefits to that side too. Yeah. Hey, what would you say, what would be your advice for somebody who uh, doesn't have any deals yet and wants to start the same way you did? They want to buy a, a, a duplex. How does they even begin that process? You know, the the duplex that I purchased was the one and only deal I've actually done off of the MLS with a realtor. Um, nice. You know, every everything else that I've done has been completely off market. But, but, you know, those types of things, if you're just trying to get in and do the duplex kind of thing, and this is your first deal, uh, I liked going that route, you know, talking to a realtor, trying to get things handled up there. You know, it was actually surprisingly difficult for me to find an entire duplex for sale. Uh, there were not very many when I was looking around. I mean, I had an option of, of probably less than 10 uh, the whole time that we were looking, but we did find the one that we liked, but, you know, contact a realtor around you, talk to some investors that you may know that, that have somebody to recommend, you know, anybody that's going to recommend a realtor period, just go talk to them, see what you can get figured out with it and, uh, and move from there. You know, you obviously you've got to have some money saved up for the down payment and everything and, and go into it with, uh, with an educated mind, but, but just diving in. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things that I can, I can recommend to anybody for any part of the uh, real estate investing is you just got to do it. Yeah. The Nike way, right? (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. Well, cool. Uh, Well, okay. So you moved on from the first one and you said that's the only one you've done uh, realtor with uh, MLS. So after that, you mentioned subject two. And so why don't we, why don't we, I guess, go into the subject two idea uh, since that's kind of your current focus. What exactly is subject two? We haven't talked about it since back. It's been a while. A long time ago. I think it was Karen Rittenhouse episode. Two, two, I think. We last talked <laughs> yep. about that. So yep. yeah, tell us what, what a subject two and how does that work? Yeah. So subject two is, is a way of saying that you're going to purchase a house um, subject to the underlying lien staying in place as is. So in other terms, the, the way that you'll, you know, more commonly uh, understand what's going on, you're taking over payments is essentially what you're doing. Okay. Now you're not assuming the loan. Uh, there's a, there's a, a slight difference there. You're not actually assuming the loan. An assumption of the loan would mean that your seller is able to talk to the bank and get your name on the loan instead of theirs. What you're doing in a, in a subject to transaction 
is you're purchasing the house. Title is transferring. You know, you have a deed that goes between you and everything so that you are the true owner of the house, but you leave the the bank debt in place and it's going to be left in the original seller's name and you will continue to make the payments to that bank on their behalf. Now, is that something you can do in all 50 states? Well, it is. Um, That's something that you can do in all 50 states. The biggest thing that you've got to know in subject to transactions is you've got to properly disclose everything. Okay. So the biggest pushback to a subject to transaction uh, that people are going to have is going to be the due on sale clause, which pretty much every mortgage is going to have a due on sale clause in it. And what that clause says is that if you sell the property, uh, uh, that the bank has the option, not the obligation, but the option to call the entirety of that loan due. Uh, at the time of sale or or any time after that, if title has changed. Realistic. So, oh, go ahead. Go, uh, uh, I, I think you're going to probably clarify, so I'll let you let you finish up. Sure. Realistically, uh, that's not really a real world problem. It is there. And it's absolutely something that needs to be disclosed to the seller, as well as if you turn around and do, a, uh, you know, do a, an owner finance transaction to your buyer, that needs to be disclosed as well. But uh, our office has seen 10,000 properties go through it over the last 25 years doing owner finance transactions. We've had the due on sale clause called, but it's only been called three times in that entirety. And all three of those times, we were able to uh, fix the situation without a refi having to occur or you know, basically without anything, anybody actually having to come up with any cash to solve that. Why, why would a bank, why would a bank uh, actually call the, the due on sale clause versus ignore it? Right. So, and that's actually a good question. You know, one of the things that whenever we're talking to our sellers, we commonly talk about is, is we just ask them point blank, you know, what does a bank want? Money, right? They want their payment. Um, If they call a due on sale, likely they are getting that property back. And, And my, my joke that I always say is that they are not in the real estate business. If they were, they would be called Caldwell Banker, not Bank of America, right? (laughs) They want their money. Um, So the bank has the right to call it. The only times that we've seen it become an issue has been in non-payment scenarios. So we've seen other investors that had come through that were not doing things the right way, um, or I shouldn't say the right way. They were doing things in a way that uh, uh, set up this failure to where instead of paying the bank directly, they were paying the seller, right? And the seller was supposed to turn around and pay their monthly payment for them. Well, the seller's saying, hey, I'm getting $1,000 a month. What? It's not my house anymore. I don't need to turn around and sell and, and pay the bank. So they just weren't paying the bank. And essentially, the bank is going to foreclose on it. But a foreclosure, uh, due to some of the foreclosure laws, takes much longer than getting a house back through due on sale. So they chose to go that route. Regardless of that being, it was still a due on sale clause being called. Okay. So the the, the risk, uh, you know, I think a lot of people look at it as as a risky uh, venture getting into mm-hmm. subject to be, because there is a chance that a bank could call call it due right Absolutely. so uh the the risk there is is really the challenge is there any way to mitigate that risk and uh reduce the chances that they're going to call it due yeah so you know there's there's certain things that can be done um, you know, at the end of the day, if it walks like a duck and looks like a duck, it's a duck, you know, and we, we don't always um, uh, go this route. But the route I'm, I'm speaking of is due to the Garn St. Germain Act that occurred, I think it was 86, I want to say somewhere in there, Garn St. Germain says that you are allowed to put a property into an estate planning trust, and that trust will not violate the due on sale clause. Okay, so what a lot of investors do to mitigate the risk is they say, well, I'll just put this this house into a land trust. 
um, which is which is essentially just a, a, a fancy way of saying LLC. I mean, it's just all paperwork. There's there's nothing really behind it. But they feel a protection level on their side because what they'll do is they'll transfer the property into a trust and then transfer the beneficial interest of that trust over to them and their subsequent buyer. That transfer into the trust does not violate the due on sale clause. However, if the bank did any kind of digging and they saw that the the beneficial interest was changed, they still have the right to call that that note due. So our, our outlook on this is proper disclosure. You know, can a seller who has had everything explained to them from top to bottom make that decision for themselves that says, yeah, you know what, I'm comfortable with this being a possible risk, but I have to offload this house or else I'm going to foreclosure for sure. Um, can that seller make that decision on their part and go forward with it? And I think absolutely yes. Um, you know, the side of it is there, there's nothing uh, illegal about the due on sale clause. A lot of people feel like you are breaking the due on sale clause. And it's very important to understand that the due on sale clause is a trigger. It's not a rule to be broken. So once you've once you've sold that property subject to, you have triggered the due on sale clause. And at that point in time, the bank has the option to call the loan due. But it's not like it says, if you sell this property without paying it off, you have broken this clause and we will call the note due. It says, if you sell it, we have the option to call the note due. Okay, yeah, so it's, so it's not illegal. Now, what about uh, telling the bank? I mean, like, let's say, you want to talk to a seller who wants to sell and they're agreeing to subject to. Now you're mm-hmm. not going to just call up the bank and say, Hey, by the way, I'm taking over payments now. Correct. Right. Right. That's correct. Because you don't, so, you don't want to push the the thing, but I guess, I mean, how does that work? And, and, and I'll just kind of piggyback on that. You know, we, we talk about disclosure, but you're not disclosing, right? So, you know, we're disclosing on the seller, the buyer, but we're not disclosing to the bank. So I, I think that's the other issue that I think, you know, people, would would hear this and say, well, that's kind of unethical, right? I mean, I'm not calling you unethical. I'm just sure, saying like sure. in general, you know, is is that unethical to uh, leave the bank out of the picture and and just kind of pretend like, you know, apologize uh, instead of uh, asking for permission? Sure. Well, I, I really don't feel that it is a uh, unethical venture here because, you know, the bank went into this, again, wanting to get their payments. They, they put their loan out. They say, hey, I'm going to give... Uh, Josh, this loan, I'm going to ask for, you know, three and a half percent, and I want to get that for the next 30 years. And that's what they're planning to get. At the end of the day, after a subject to transaction, that bank still has Josh liable on the loan. Okay. Josh understands that Josh is still liable on that loan. So the bank still has the same recourse that it, that it always would have, regardless of what that transaction is. Yep. So, so where does, where does Josh get caught up then? I mean, because uh, there, there's, there's, I'm now, I'm, I, I, Josh no longer own this property. I've sold it to Brandon, Mm -hmm. but I Mm -hmm. owe, I owe, uh, money to the bank. If Brandon screws up and stops paying the bank, I'm in deep poop. Right. So how, how do, how do I, as, as, uh, the seller of the, the property overcome that issue? Sure. Well, and it's all a case by case scenario, you know, and it's all what is what is any quote unquote Josh out there going to feel as their risk aversion. So, you know, here's the thing. Let me let me start by uh, saying that, you know, most people that are in the scenario that are going to be selling with subject to uh, this is pretty much their only option to sell, you know, a, a good percentage of these sellers. That's it. It's either that or foreclosure. OK, or or being stuck with this loan where they're having to pay 
two mortgage payments. You know, I've, I've sold it, or I'm sorry, I bought a house um, in, I guess, December of last year uh, that was from a gentleman who got transferred to a job that was hundreds of miles away. And he had been paying two mortgage payments for a couple few months. And he just couldn't do it anymore. It was killing him. You know, this mortgage payment was, was $1,500 a month on top of what he was having to pay for out there. And he just didn't care. He said, look, I just need to get this thing off of my books. I don't want to have a foreclosure on my record. You know, I don't care what happens in the future because worst case scenario, if he's left back into that, into that situation where he has to take back over the payments, he's just where he was when he started. And oh, by the way, we've been paying the equity down now for two, three, four, five, six years, however, you know, however long away that was. So usually it's going to leave the seller in a better scenario uh, at the end of the day there. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so in either, either way, the, the, the seller is in a, in a position where they're probably going to lose the property due to foreclosure or something bad's going to happen. And yeah, the risk it's, it's risk reward. You're you, I give it to you. If you screw up, I've still lost the property. Mm -hmm. uh, but at least I, I might've gotten some cash from you up front. Right. Absolutely. You might, you might get some cash up front and you don't know what that scenario, what that's going to be, what your, what your situation is going to look like if it ever did uh, come back to you. And I should say, you know, our, our default rate in this owner financed world is very low. We're, we're at about a 3% default rate. Well, gotcha. yeah, it's, not, it's not terrible. So, all right. So you get these properties, you're buying them with subject to, uh, mm -hmm. I'm assuming mostly with no money down, correct? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the goal is to, to get it with no money down. Okay. And typically do you ever put, I mean, I mean, what would be a typical amount down if you did have to do it down? Is it just moving costs? It, it, it really, again, it depends on the equity. It depends on the person. Um, houses with more equity, we're more willing to to put money into as a down payment, you know, but it's it's very rarely going to be above $5,000. Um, you know, I'm closing on a house. Actually, there's a house closing uh, right now as we speak that we are, uh, we paid $750 for it. You know, and we are already actually have that house sold. The, the sale side is going to close tomorrow morning. Um, but you know, out of my pocket right now, it's only seven fifty to buy that house, and it'll get recouped for me in the morning. Okay, cool. So, so, well, uh, and I'm gonna just jump back on on yeah. this one. So this one where there's seven fifty, mm -hmm. what what what's their what's the case? You know, what's the situation that the actual seller is dealing with? Are they at zero? Uh, you know, do they have any equity in this pro uh, property? Where are they? Yeah, no, they they had no equity in the property. Unfortunately, they did a refinance in the middle of uh, uh, just a bad time to do refinances. I think they refinanced in 06, um, you know, and, and uh, they have since moved and gotten another property. This is another one of those scenarios where they're living in a house right now. They were going to have to pick up the payments for the house that they, that I ended up buying from them. And it just didn't make sense for them anymore. They needed to get rid of it. Now this particular house was in terrible shape. Um, you know, there, <laughs> I went through there and there's just garbage everywhere. Half of the kitchen tiles are missing. The, the toilet is sitting in the hallway instead of in the bathroom. It's been, <laughs> you know, taken off of the, <laughs> the floor and it's just sitting there. There's foundational issues, those kinds of things. So in order for them to sell this as a retail, uh, sale, they would, they would have to put in a solid 15, $20,000 to it and holding costs and realtor commissions. And there's just not room for that. So again, it's an, it's one of those things where it's, well, do I let it go to foreclosure or do we yeah. go to one of these investors that can take care of it? Yeah. So who, gotcha. are, who are you then selling it to? Cause now you're selling a house that has very little or no equity right. to somebody mm -hmm. that needs a lot of work. Who's buying that? Right. So there's, there's a whole demographic for that. There's actually uh, a, a ton of buyers out there, you know, and, and 
about 95% of my buyers here. Now I'm in Dallas, so I'm in I'm in Texas. We have a, a heavy Hispanic population. Most of my buyers are uh, Hispanic family members that you know they may have their their business is a construction business, you know, and their wife's business is a cleaning business. That's about 65 to 70% of our buyers. That's that. So you look at these people and uh, you look at them with Dave Ramsey eyes and they're phenomenal buyers. You know, these are people that have absolutely no debt. They've been saving their cash. They live well beneath their means. Um, But because of, oh, and they're self-employed, you know, but because of that, you look at them from a bank's perspective and the bank sees strike one, self-employment, you know, strike two, no credit history, you know, and so they, they go through these and these are people that can't get traditional lending and they want to be homeowners and they have this pride in ownership and they don't care. A lot of times they don't care if it's in terrible shape because they do that all day anyway. They would rather get that house, own the house, make the repa- uh, uh, repairs. And guys, you know, this one that I sold it on, uh, this particular house is sold on a 15 year note. You know, these people are always doing 10, 15 year notes and uh, they're just fantastic buyers. So, I mean, so regardless of the demographic of the buyer, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're talking about people who aren't afraid to get their hands dirty, who, right. are, who are potential. Are, are you selling to a lot of investors? I mean, I would consider those folks some kind of investors anyway, because sure. they're putting right. money in, you know, but but uh, are you selling to traditional flip, flippers or, or wholesalers or or buy and hold investors uh, who are renting it out or, or is it really mostly folks lo- looking to live as a primary residence? Yeah. yeah it's all owner occupants on the, uh, on the subject to and on our financing side. Now I do wholesale properties and I do flip properties uh, and those will go out to investors commonly. But when I've taken a property down with subject to, and I'm turning around and doing a wrap uh, mortgage on that and doing owner financing, that's all owner occupied. What, what's a wrap mortgage? A wrap mortgage means that I've purchased a house with subject to, which we've just spoken about. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn around and I'm going to try and find a buyer who needs owner financing. So let's take a, let's take some numbers here. Let's say that I buy a house uh, for $90,000. They owe 90 grand on it. And my payments to that bank for that house are going to be 850 a month, PITI. Uh, A rep mortgage would mean I'm going to turn around and I'm going to sell that house for $105,000. I'm going to get a $10,000 down payment. That's going to be my profit up front. So now I'm financing a $95,000 note, and I'm going to finance it as such to where their payment is $1,000 PITI. So now I've made $10,000 up front, and I'm making $150 a month for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. That's a wrap mortgage. Gotcha. All right. That's that's cool. So what would be the difference in your mind? Uh, so let me actually give an example. I've got one of my best friends bought a house a few years ago, uh, ended up you know, moving into it. He owes roughly sixty thousand on it. It's probably worth eighty, maybe seventy. I mean, not enough for him to make a good chunk of money off of it. He wants out really bad right now. He wants to buy a new house. Doesn't like the neighborhood. Needs out. Doesn't want to deal with it. Doesn't want to list it. Whatever. So he said, "Brandon, will you buy it from me?" And I said, like, "Well, I don't have. I mean, I I can't really do anything with it." So then I started thinking, well, "What if I did a lease option or a subject to?" So first of all, mm-hmm. why should I do? I mean, like, what would you recommend in that kind of case? Why would I do a subject to? Um, or would I, you know, what are your thoughts? Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a great subject to scenario. And one of the things you brought up there was the lease option. And and um, just to kind of side rail on that for a second, in Texas, lease options are, are, are somewhat largely illegal. You know, you can do a lease option for up to 180 days um, before that lease option has to die. So uh, 
that's kind of where the subject two side comes in and, and allows a little bit longer term solution for it. But absolutely, that's the kind of that's the kind of deal I buy all day. You know, one of those where they are just pretty much, you know, I, I say at water, <laughs> you know, they're not underwater, yep. but they couldn't sell that without bringing money to the table. Yeah. And uh, and especially with that, the work, because it needs, you know, five, ten grand with the work. Just yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so with that work and everything being taken account or being accounted for, you know, could you sell that house? Because here's another thing, you know, a, a lot of the owner financed market, when you buy an owner financed house, the the price is going to typically be a little bit more than retail. Yep. Um, most of the investors out there are going to charge maybe 10% more than what the retail price would be on it because the financing is built in. And, and that's just kind of where things are. Um, you know, you could just charge the straight retail price. At this case, you're saying it's about 80 grand. You know, if you took that house that he owes 60 on and you sold it at $80,000, you could collect a 10% down payment. Heck, you could probably get $10,000 as a down payment on that. And then you're holding back a note of 70 grand. So now not only have you accepted $10,000 as your profit up front, but you also have a, uh, an equity spread in the property between that 60 he owes and the 70 that your buyer owes you. And the owner financing interest rates are going to be in between eight and eight and ten percent typically. So you're playing arbitrage on the interest that he's paying to his bank underneath as well. So there's a lot of profit centers in owner financing that you just don't get out of some of the other uh, investing strategies. And what what kind of like as kind of playing the middleman there? You're collecting a hundred, two hundred dollars a month in cash flow mm -hmm. on each property. Mm -hmm. What kind of responsibility, I guess, do you have as a uh, as the person doing that? For example, if the 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 second guy, the guy who bought it, doesn't pay. He gets late or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, do you? I mean, do you? Are you in charge of working that out, or is that between those two people at that point? Or where? Where, did, where do you play into that? That's a good question. It is a good question, and it depends on how you structure your deal because there's actually a couple of different ways that you can do it. Now, my my preference is to go into the deal with a subject to, which which means that I am actually going to take title of that property. And then I'm going to turn around and then I'm going to sell it. So I'm actually standing right in between the transaction. If my end buyer stops paying, then the next responsible party is going to be me. Mm -hmm. And I make that decision and I say, okay, well, I'm going to pay the underlying lien off because here's the thing. Let's say that I do have a default that occurs all right, on that property. And let's say that it takes me two months to foreclose on that person and get a new buyer in there. So I've got two months worth of debt servicing. That's $800 a month. So I'm out 1600 bucks, right? But if that means that I foreclosed on my first buyer, I pay $1,600, I get to put a new buyer in there for a new 30-year note with another $10,000 down, well, that's a $8,500 profit right there in two months off of the same asset that you already made a profit on. And now, you know, who knows how long it was before your end buyer defaulted. You may have four years worth of equity that's been paid off. So now, instead of owing 60 to the bank, maybe you owe 50 to the bank. And so now your $70,000 note all of a sudden has a $20,000 equity spread in it yep. versus the 10,000 that you had before. So help help me out here on the equity spread because I I I'm I'm somewhat I'm pretty much unfamiliar with this in, until this discussion these okay. wraps and and I'm sitting here and thinking okay so you've now purchased this property subject to from the first guy Right. right. The first mm -hmm. guy owes the bank money. He, let's do an easy easy number. So $100,000 is uh, is the mortgage the property is worth say a hundred thousand dollars right just okay. keep it simple sure so you got to make these payments to the bank uh, for a hundred thousand you know a hundred thousand dollars to pay off you now 
own the property itself, which is worth a hundred thousand dollars. It's worth zero because mm-hmm. you're. Mm-hmm. I mean, you owe a hundred thousand, and I mean, sure, right. So you're at net zero. Um, you've now sold the property for say a hundred and five thousand. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you make the five thousand dollars spread, and just just to make the numbers. Oh, it's this, this is going to get really complicated, but um, I'm I'm trying to simplify it, which is why I'm kind of stammering here. How, who, as the note gets paid down, who's who's actually incurring that pay down? Is that you or is that the new buyer? That's that's where I'm. I, I think I need this okay. in writing so, okay. so I can see it hearing it myself. I can't even get it. So everybody who is listening who might sure, actually you know. be confused. Uh, you're you're not alone. There's there's a lot happening. There's a lot of moving parts. Josh so where, is always confused. That's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Anyway, so what? Where are we? Who's seeing the gains? Are you seeing? Are you seeing gains on that? Is no, is the new? A, that's a fantastic question that you've got there. And I do want to touch on the point that you said that there's a lot of moving or a lot of moving parts on here because there absolutely are. I mean, the owner financing world. Uh, if you notice, I mean, even on bigger pockets, there's not a lot of people out there that are specializing in this in this niche. Because there's just so many more moving parts than there is for a wholesale property or for even a fix and flip. So to answer your question more directly, so you've got a $100,000 mortgage that you owe Chase, okay? And uh, yep. now Brandon comes in and he buys the property for one hundred five. He gives, he, you know, he gives a, a $5,000 down payment. He now has a mortgage for $100,000, okay? So we are completely matched up yep. from what's owed to the bank and what's owed to me, yep. right? I'm going to make profits by assuming that that let's say that you owe that bank 100 or you owe Chase $100,000 at 6%. Well, I'm going to charge 8% to Brandon. Okay? So there's where my money's going to come in. I have no spread in equity, yep. but it's arbitrage. I have more I interest being paid to me, yep. okay? Yep. So as Brandon pays that note off, it will actually be simultaneously paying the bank and my side of things off. I'm not I'm not, not getting any kind of equity def, uh, differential there because those numbers are going to be going down at the same time. We've got basically one mortgage on this to gotcha. Brandon for $100,000 and as that's being paid off, so is the underlying lien. Gotcha. I'm just collecting the interest in between. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, I mean, as, essentially what's happening is the, I mean, I, as I sit and I think about it, the person who's who's actually benefiting isn't you. It isn't Brandon. It's me. I'm the guy who's seller. It's the seller. It's the guy who sold the property to you because you guys are wiping out my debt to the bank. And I say this all the time to sellers because it is a win, win, win scenario. So, you know, Josh, you need it out. Yep. We're going to, we're going to preserve your credit because your payments are getting made on time from this point on. Right. So you actually have some payments getting made on time. Brandon's going to get to buy a house that he would have never had a chance to buy the house of before. And I get to run a business and make a living. Right. Yeah. It it took me a minute to, to kind of sift through all the moving parts, but yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's pretty obvious. So, well, it's not obvious. (laughs) Clearly it's not obvious. Yeah. That's so obvious. I'm just, I'm just the guy who's not afraid to say, I didn't understand it. And And I absolutely appreciate it. And that. now I'm such I do. A huge proponent of questions is unreal. I love to sit down with sellers because, and I think that that's one of the things that makes us successful as well is because I encourage the questions. I want a seller to know exactly what they're getting into whenever they get there. And I want a buyer to know exactly what they're getting into when they get there, because otherwise you get this, uh, you, you know, I don't, in other words, I don't want to be the guy that's perpetuating that investor 
theme. You know, people have this idea of what an investor is and they're trying to snake everything away that they can. Every one of my sellers knows exactly where I'm going to make money. I tell them right up front, hey, this is what we're doing. Yeah. I'm going to buy it to you for, from you for this and I'm going to turn around and sell it for this. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, you know, I my my issue always comes comes into when, when folks are, are uh, leaving leaving things out and and uh, you know being uh, somewhat less than forthcoming. I, right. I think in this in this case you have to because really it is complicated and those people who are probably involved in the situation need somebody to hold their hand before they're willing mm-hmm. to to dive in. So uh, you know I think that's uh, I think that's great. Right. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale. Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Listeners, I'm telling you right now, it's not every day you find a game changer like Rent Ready. They're not stopping with just tenant screening. They've rolled out proof of income verification. Let Rent Ready handle the heavy lifting with automatic checks on financial stability and earnings. Plus, with Plaid certified reports, you'll have all the info you need right at your fingertips. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. And if you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for just $1. How great of a deal is that? That's one eighth of a Chipotle. That's pretty good. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor, to get six months of Rent Ready for $1. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, how are you? How are you finding the people to sell? Like, what's your lead uh, model look like? Yeah. So, hey, so, hold on. Can we can we find how are you finding uh, the the properties to buy before we go? Oh to, wait, isn't that what I just said? Yeah. Uh, how are you finding sellers? Right. Is that what I said? Oh, oh. How are you finding? Sellers? Yeah. Sell, like house sellers, the the leads. <laughs> okay. 
you're, how are you finding the buy, the purchase end versus the where, where you're getting? Yeah, how are you? Yeah, how are you finding properties to buy? Yeah, yeah exactly. there you go. So, uh, all right. so the way that we we differentiate that we say acquisitions and sales, right? So okay, the, we're, so if you're looking for your seller, that's your acquisition side, and then you're, you're going to turn around and sell it. Uh, one of my biggest lead models right now for acquisitions is dealing with wholesalers and other investors out there. Uh, wholesalers are routinely throwing away leads that that are perfect subject to transactions um, all the time because a wholesaler looks at it from the perspective of this house is at 80% and it needs five grand in repair. There's no way anybody's going to buy this from me and they throw it in the trash, you know, whereas we're able to turn around and say, holy cow, there's 20% of equity there. Heck yeah. Give me that deal. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and we turn around and we make that, make that work. And, and in turn, you know, we pay that wholesaler out and our wholesalers love us because you know, like a couple of weeks ago, I closed on a property that was, uh, they got $2,500 for something that they were, they literally pulled out, out of the trash can. Yeah. Is that, is that a typical fee that you pay the, uh, the wholesalers about? I, I try to get everybody at least 500 bucks, even on things that I'm upside down on. Yeah. Um, because there are going to be scenarios where like I buy a property, for instance, I closed on one, uh, last week and, and this'll just, this is some of the stuff you run into sometimes. So I, I had this house, it was on the market. I'd been trying to sell it for an inordinate amount of time. Uh, it was about two months that I had this thing on the market, which is very abnormal for owner financing. Finally got a buyer for it. We were set to close the next week. Cause there's a, uh, you have to wait seven days. Uh, at least in Texas, you have to wait seven days from the time you disclose that there's an underlying lien to the time that you're able to close on the property. And even on top of that, due to RESPA, the real estate settlement procedures act, uh, you have to wait seven business days from the time you give them their like truth and lending and those kinds of disclosures before you're able to close. So we got our contract on a Thursday. We were set to close the following Friday. Thursday night, somebody broke in and stole all the copper. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, awesome. you know, yeah. So that that was just one of those kind of things that you run into. Well, the buyer ended up uh, backing out, but I did have a backup offer from one of these gentlemen like I was talking about that was just willing to do the work. So they came in, they had a $10,000 down payment, um, but there were actually arrearages on this property that I had to pay. Uh, this was one of those properties where the, where the seller hadn't made their payments for several months. So I actually had a $10,000 reinstatement fee. And that, uh, that was with the bank itself. Yeah, that was with the bank itself self right so that's that seems to me like a situation where the bank might have been borderline like oh well why the hell are we gonna take this money from you we're so close to taking this property back and i'm guessing you probably had to go in to make the argument hey bank you know do you want to hold on to this property or do you want to start getting payments well not even because it's just a it's just a simple reinstatement fee you know it hadn't gone to uh it hadn't gone to the attorney's office or anything like that we hadn't gone gotcha. through foreclosure proceedings okay. it was just arrearages okay so I, I paid the arrearages I paid the buyer's agent uh you know which was another three grand so there right there I'm down by three grand uh, but this was brought into me from somebody so, so I was sure to pay I, they still got 500 bucks on this right I mean it was a deal that that shouldn't have worked we made it work I went under, I'll make that money back eventually, you know, so that's okay with me. And this was something that they weren't going to be able to capitalize on. So they're happy to get the 500 bucks out of it. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So you, uh, I think it's probably a good transition to what about selling the property then? Um, how are you finding the, the disposition? Yeah. The, uh, what's, what's your word? You said say acquisition dispo- and d- disposition. Is that what he said? Oh no. Acquisition and sale. Ah, same thing. Same. Yeah. I was like it's disposition. A, what is yeah. disposition? Same, same. Yeah. The sale. So now Josh, <laughs> uh, now I'm going to go Google it and make sure I'm not crazy. <laughs> sure. Uh, so the, yeah. How are you finding the person to sell it to? 
So the person, the 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 buyer, you know, that's going to come yeah. in and buy this property, that's going to be somebody that, um, you know, honestly, the biggest the biggest way of finding those people is a word of mouth and b the uh, the sign in the front yard. Okay. By, by the way, just just to clarify, I just want to make sure that we're all on the <laughs> same page here. According to Google, disposition is the action of distributing or transferring property or money to someone in particular by bequest. Therefore, I was correct. I I didn't Are I didn't expect done? to be so schooled today. Thank you. No, I wasn't schooling you. I was schooling Brandon. <laughs> he would call me out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. All right. So Grant, I I've got a I've got a follow up here. The, sure. The, to me, this sounds like you're you're doing a couple of things. There's an acquisition strategy, which is the sub two, and there's a disposition strategy, which is sell the note. He's going to use that word as many times. Yeah, yeah that's pretty much what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But listen, so you're—I mean, you're selling the—you're you're selling the note. I mean, that's ultimately what you're doing. You're selling the note to an owner occupant. That's right. the big trick there, because owner occupant, uh, uh, owner financing. There is a ton of compliance issues that you have to abide by when you do owner occupant occupied stuff versus when you're selling to an investor, when you're selling to, well, an investor of any sort, whether that be through notes or through like wholesaling, you don't have to worry about compliance issues that our wonderful, you know, Dodd-Frank laws have put into place. Yeah. Well, why don't we, uh, why don't we get into that? Because that's an issue. Dodd-Frank is something that confuses me. It confuses a lot of people. Uh, what is Dodd-Frank and why should we care about it? By, by the way, I just you know want to point out here that w while I was confused previously on the show, Brandon has just explained how confused he is right now. And <laughs> I just you know I just want the uh, twenty five fifty thousand people listening to the show to to, to for keep all the scorekeepers out there. Yeah, you know because that's in my defense. I'm searching Google right now. Uh, Dodd, <laughs> Dodd Frank has how many pages? 9,000 pages. So, and you haven't read them. Yet? And I have not read them yet. Come so on, man. Okay. there's a little this morning. I'm, that's, yeah. That's on page seven morning coffee. <laughs> I'm a little confused on page 7,643 nice. paragraph four. On the third so. link or fourth. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us, tell uh, us yeah, about Dodd Frank. Listen, what is yeah, it? Dodd Frank is one of the single most misinformed things out there right now we have so many people saying so much stuff that they have never read before um <laughs> with dodd frank which is really unfortunate well how many pages have you read just i i've actually read the entirety of the dodd frank act along with the entirety of the safe act and respa and truth and lending that wow. puts you at the one percent of the one percent of the one percent so yeah. we, should, we should protest you right I'm now. i'm pretty sure that's more know, than dodd yeah. or frank have read i'm, well, po I'm positive certain yeah. right yeah anyway. it's some it's some uh it's some good exciting reading there yes um so yeah, the the thing is, is that there are uh, there are a lot of caveats that uh, you know, and and actually mark this on the calendar because it will be the day that I am giving our government credit uh, that they have given the small time investor ways to continue to do business and just guidance on how to do it the right way. Okay, so a lot of people saw Dodd Frank come out, which is a reform. Uh, the the section that's applicable to us is mortgage reform. Okay, it is it is what can happen. Who can you sell a house to? Uh, and provide a mortgage at that same time. Okay, uh, so what they were trying to do this was this was a a I don't necessarily want to say a knee jerk reaction, but this was the reaction to the housing crash. It was a said. knee jerk reaction. Yeah, thank you. I'll say it, <laughs> and I, and and I'll put emphasis on jerk. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so so what they saw is they saw the housing crash occur, and they said, "What can we do to make people feel like we, we did something?" 
and they came out with the Dodd-Frank Act. And uh, this was Barney Frank and Chris Dodd, and they got together and they they wanted to uh, uh, put as many guidelines in place so that they're trying to put buyers into houses that can afford it, which I get. I understand, and I'm on board with that. Um, one of the things that many, many, many investors out there doing this don't understand is that we are actually considered what's what is what is laid out as a small creditor, which means that well, and I'm assuming that 99.9% of our audience will fall under the small creditor. And if you don't, you need to con- contact Josh and uh, talk about lending some money. But this uh, a small creditor I'll is somebody, find somebody that else there, buddy. Uh, small creditor is somebody that has less than $2 billion in assets and did under 500 deals, 500 originated loans the previous calendar year. Okay. So I'm guessing that's pretty much everybody listening. A small creditor is allowed to do much, much more than the big boys are, than the chases, than the, than the bank of America's, those kinds of things. One of the common, uh, Dodd-Frank items that we hear get brought up is people say, you can't put a person into a property with more than 43% debt to income ratio, meaning that they owe bills, including housing, that their their debt would be 43% or more of what their income is. And that's actually inaccurate. For a small creditor, there is no debt to income ratio cap, period. You can you can put somebody in there at 80, 90% if you wanted to. Would it be ethical? No. But there's no law saying that you can't. Uh, and there's just line item like that over and over and over again that gives us guidance of who we can and can't put in there. But at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is give us afford us protection in court. If we ever got sued by our buyer and that buyer was able to say, hey, at the time I went into this house, I was unable to afford it. Uh, Dodd-Frank has given us a way to say, actually, I obeyed everything that Dodd-Frank told me to look for. So side with me and the court will do so. So 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 r- r- really quick, if if you. Do you guys then uh, ensure that they're at the forty three point five or whatever it was, and you know, and not go up to forty four percent? I I don't, okay. I, not at all. I put people in there routinely that are that are well above forty four percent or forty three percent. Um, and and here's the example I use: you run into somebody, let's say, because uh, I've had this, they make fifteen thousand dollars a month. Um, can they be at a fifty percent debt to income ratio and still have enough money to live? Yeah. Heck yes. Yeah. You know, are are you telling me that you can't live off of $7,500 a month for groceries and gas? Right. So, so in that case, 50% is absolutely fine. Now, what about the guy that works at Burger King, you know, and he makes a thousand dollars a month. Can you put him into a house that costs 50% of that, that income? Probably not. I I would say no. Yeah. I mean, absolutely not. I'm not going to put somebody in there. That's going to, that's going to only have, you know, $400 $400 to live on, $500 to live on, and they've got two kids. Yep. Yeah. Something like that. So percentages matter less than common sense in this scenario. Yeah. And and you're not biased against Burger King workers in general. <laughs> no, I, that... lo- I love me some Whoppers. Don't get me wrong. I'm yeah. just saying. Yeah. All right. Just clarify. So, all right. So, so Dodd-Frank, I mean, we, we got it. We can dig a little bit deeper on this too, but the main thing from what I've learned is like Dodd-Frank mm-hmm. affects people who are originating mortgages, which is what you are doing, correct? When you're subject to, correct. you are originating. So- not when you're doing subject to, when you're doing the wrap. When you're doing yeah, the wrap. That's the sales side. The acquisition yeah. side. Correct. And then the wrap would be the sales side. All right. So does that mean that – are you licensed then to do that? I mean, do you have to be a mortgage I am, originator? Yes. I, I, I'm a licensed RMLO, a, re, a residential mortgage loan originator. Um, and, and I also have a mortgage brokerage, uh, which we operate those things through. All right. So if you – oh. 
Well, this you have you... to have that. You go ahead, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> We're so excited we can't even figure out who's talking. Uh, so my question was: Do you then uh, do you have to be licensed to originate these loans, or can that's, brand yeah, that's do that's it? a good question. So due to the Safe Act, it says that if you originate five or more loans in a rolling twelve month period, you must be licensed to originate that loan. The flip side of that is uh, many investors feel like that means that they can't do more than five deals a, a year, which is also inaccurate. Uh, we actually, um, you know, recommend going to an RMLO, finding an RMLO to originate that for you. And that is that that is one of the big reasons I am an RMLO is that I process the loans and originate the loans for the other investors around town that are doing that kind of stuff. And RMLO stands for residential mortgage loan originator. Again, if you right. were listening, Josh, you would have heard him I, say I that did, a but, second you know, ago. <laughs> listen, it's I, repetition. I, I, it takes gotta, it takes listen. a little while to dig in here. So yeah. just you know, no, talk absolutely. to me like a three year old, and I'll get it. <laughs> a lot right. of information getting out there, but yeah, that's uh, you, you don't have to be licensed to be in this business, but you have to have somebody licensed originating the loan for you in the long run. So if you were to buy these with subject to, and then rent them out as a landlord and not right. wrap them. You don't need a license, but if you're going to do this, like you are doing it often, you need one, correct? Uh, not necessarily because oh, I unless you, know, you use somebody who is, unless you use an armalo, correct? Yeah. Okay. Some of my clients do five, six, seven of these a month and they are unlicensed, but I'm the, I am the licensed person that is taking care of the licensing issues and compliance issues for them. Okay. So, so they didn't want to read Dodd Frank in its entirety. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what are they doing? Are they then calling up and trying to just looking up in the book or online RMLOs and, and basically saying, all right, this is what I, this is the deal. I found this property. I got this property subject to, I want to dispose of it and sell it, disposition it. Uh, and, and, you know, can you originate the loan for me? You get your fee, presumably, and uh, they- no, I do it for free. I'm just a good guy. I'm, I'm kidding. I don't do it for free. I, see <laughs> I was wondering, I was like, oh, you're going to get a lot of phone calls after this. What's up, Grant? How's it going, buddy? <laughs> so so they, pay, okay, yeah, they pay you so, to do it. Right, exactly. So the, my fee typically comes from the buyer. Um, is who's going to pay basically all the closing costs are going to be paid for by the buyer. You know, we work very hard in our office to keep uh, as much money in the investor's pocket as possible to keep them from having to to pay for anything. And that works on the law firm side as well as on the uh, mortgage broker side. But the closing costs do come from that person from the buyer and the investor just tells me, hey, I want to get this loan at 8%. I need a $700 payment a month, that kind of thing, because negotiating the terms must be done by a licensed individual. So the investor tells me, I talk to the buyer, we get it all settled out that way. And what does it take to get licensed? Is is it is RMLO, is that basically the same as a, a mortgage license or is it? Yeah. Is it yeah. So RMLO is, is, is basically the new uh, uh, designation Acronym. for a loan officer. Okay. So, so there's a 23 hour course here in Texas, uh, different states are different ways. And, um, and then you do have to take a test that, that goes along with that. And there, you know, in my case, there's both a state and national test. So, you know, there's, uh, there's 39 states in the nation that have tagged onto the national test that, you, you know, so like, for instance, I can originate in 38 other states around the nation. Uh, uh, and similarly, if anybody's there, they can originate in our, in our state, but yeah, it's 23 hour class and then lots and lots and lots of reading and studying before taking the test and then you go from there. So, so really, really quick, the, the 
national test mm -hmm. allows you to be an originator in 39 other states. It's, it's interesting. I, I wonder why that's acceptable, but you know, on the real estate uh, license side, agent, for example, I mean, there's, there's, you know, state by state, it's, it's kind of interesting, something right. I never really thought about, but, uh, well, and, and the reason behind that is that if you look at the, uh, uh, the job that they're doing largely real estate law is a local law, right? Sale yep. selling and that kind of thing. Of course. Well, we're dealing with Dodd-Frank here, which is a federal law. Yeah. And, and most of the compliance issues that you're going to be dealing with are federalized. So that's why I'm able to originate in other states, whereas like an agent would have to learn more state-specific laws for these other ones. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Cool. All right. Cool. Um, all right. So, go ahead, cool. Brandon. Okay, I have a question. Um, this is going back maybe too far. Uh, you know, we've moved past this part of the conversation. But when you're actually closing these deals, mm -hmm. are you closing them at a title company? Uh, or do you, does a normal, does everyone need to do that? Or can you just sign a piece of paper with a notary? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah. You do need to go through a full closing. Um, uh, you know, typically these kinds of closings are going to be done through an attorney's office rather than a title company. Uh, however, you can do title closings. The thing is, is you actually don't, uh, usually get title insurance on the sale side of a deal like this. There is already title insurance on the underlying lien that's that's to the bank and then uh you do that obviously your abstract of title or or title run or whatever you do uh or whatever you choose to do from the time that your your seller the acquisition side has bought the property to this point in time uh, a couple caveats you are actually unable legally to do a title policy on top of an fha loan or a va loan anything government related you cannot do a title policy on the wrap however if it's conventional or, or something uh else then on the sale side, you would be able to let your buyer purchase a title policy if they so chose. Can you still do a wrap on, on an FHA loan? Yeah, you, yeah, you can still wrap it. You can okay. still wrap the, the mortgage. And like I said, you know, <clears throat> pretty much all of my buyers do not choose to go with the title policy because the title policy is going to be, uh, you know, upwards of $1,000, $2,000, something like that, depending on the value of the house. And again, the title policy does exist on the underlying lien from when your original seller purchased the property. Cool. So walk me through this. And this is something I wanted to ask a while ago, but uh, we, we kind of got into Dodd-Frank and, and uh, now that we've jumped back, let's talk about the length of time for a transaction. You mm -hmm. find, you identify a property that you want to acquire mm -hmm. uh, via a, um, uh, a subject to, how long does that typically take before you've closed? Um, so what I do when I go under contract with all of my buyers is I go under a 60 day option period. Um, I'm sorry, with, with all of my sellers on the acquisition side, I go under a 60 day option period that gives me two months to market the property for sale, uh, while my, my seller is still paying the underlying lien. Um, go ahead. Got, gotcha. I, I, I was going to say, okay, so now you've just introduced something else complicated into the mix here, an option. And, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. What does that look like and how does that work? Okay. Um, well, well, the first, to, to go back and answer your question more directly on that last question, it, it typically takes two or three weeks to get something from start to finish closed. Okay, perfect. Um, uh, the option period, that is the method that we use. So here's the thing is I, I, I put under, I put a lot of houses under contract, you know, every month. We're, we're doing between six and 15 houses a month. And um, when you put a house under contract, if you were to have to close on it right then and start debt servicing right then, that gets really expensive. 
you know, let's say that it doesn't take two or three weeks. Let's say it does take two months to sell this property. Well, there's two months worth of house payments that I would have had to made, right? And let's say that it doesn't sell for two months. Do I still want to try and sell that property or not? So what we do is we go under an option period, which gives us the right to uh, end the transaction at any point in time within that 60 days. And during that point, we have a written agreement that allows us to market the property. So we're going to put signs in the yard. We're going to put ads up on Craigslist. We're going to go to postlets.com and put ads up there. Try to find a buyer for that property. When I find a buyer, that's the point in time that I go back to my seller and I say, hey, Josh, I have now found a, buyer, uh, found a buyer. Brandon wants to buy this property from me. So let's close tomorrow. Josh, you say, okay, cool. I'll be there tomorrow at 11. And then I call Brandon and I say, okay, we're ready to close. And you be here tomorrow at 12. And we just kind of go A to B, B to C. Okay. And 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 with this option, they're not j- just giving it to you for free, right? So you've got to put some cash down in order to secure the option. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, all, although minimal, you know, here in Texas, it's, I mean, it's like a $10 fee that, that you hand them. Wait, to- so you're literally giving somebody a $10 option fee, mm-hmm. tying their property up, getting it under contract for two months mm-hmm. at any point in that two months, you can walk, which is pretty much the the, the benefit of the option. Yep. And that $10 is giving you the right to get out there, market it, hopefully find them a, a buyer, find mm-hmm. a buyer for the deal. Uh, you find the buyer, you close with them, and it, it almost feels like a wholesale. Yeah, I mean, it's in that way, it's very similar to it because you put no money into it. Yeah. But, but oh my gosh, you look at the upsides versus wholesaling and it's just tremendous. Well, you I mean, got any, cash flow, right? I mean, it's well, like, yeah, yeah, cash flow on top. Of, because here's the thing a typical wholesale deal, a typical wholesale deal, you're going to get what, $5,000 for right around, uh, at least locally. That's how it is. Um, you know, whereas with an owner finance deal, you know, we get 10, 15, 20, sometimes $30,000 down payments right up front. Well, that already blows out what you were getting on the wholesale side. But, my average cash flow is $350 a month. You know, I've got some that are cash flow in 600. I've got some that are cash flow in 100. But I'm doing that for however is however long is left on the underlying lien. So let's say that Josh, you you only had 15 years left to pay Chase Bank, right? But I've sold my house to Brandon for 30 years. Yep. So for 15 years, I'm only going to make $150-200. Right. But after that underlying is paid off, your enti- or Brandon's entire payment is going to be my profit. Yep. That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> so that, that's cool. All right, let, let's, we got to kind of start wrapping this thing up. Obviously um, we're getting, you know, we're at about an hour mark. So what I want to ask you kind of my last question is how long have you been doing this? When did you start this process? Cause you're doing six to 15 deals a month, you said, right? Yes. So, I mean, how long did it take you to build up to that point uh, where you're doing, you know, literally well, hundreds of when, transactions? Yeah. Whenever I bought my duplex, that was January of 2012. Um, my first subject to transaction was July of 2012. And then it's kind of moved forward since then. Um, you know, it was, it was third quarter of last year that I started bringing on, uh, what we call our acquisitions team, you know, where we have other investors that we were training how to do that kind of stuff. And then letting, you know, having their, their deals kind of funnel through and we would work together on those. Um, and it's just kind of been growing and growing exponentially from that point. You know, that was that was really when things started to, to kick off whenever I changed the strategy over from, OK, I'm going to send out all these letters. I'm going to put stamps on and I'm going to try and get this deal, too. I'm going to work with wholesalers and other investors. So how big is your team today? Um, I have about 20 people of acquisitions team members um, of that. 
truly active members. I've got probably seven or eight that are truly active, bringing consistent deals in. The other ones will get one-offs here and there. Um, but you know, it's it, we're a resource for everybody. So how do, how does that work? You 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 go out and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to train you, uh, investor number B, investor you know Brandon here to <laughs> sure. to uh, do this and. If you find any opportunities, you send them our way and we'll give you a fee. You don't have to work, but if you do and you bring right. stuff in, is that kind right? Of, yeah. So yeah, what what we do is we go under an agreement where it says, um, you know, we will train the full ins and outs of subject to owner financing wraps, all that kind of stuff. And even, you know, with the with wholesaling and and cash deals and rehabs and all that kind of stuff, because we we still do that sort of thing. But we go on an agreement that says all of their owner financed deals that they pick up. Uh, we go under a two-year agreement with these guys that, that all the under over finance deals that they pick up will funnel through triple equity and we will work together and partner up on that. If they get a wholesale deal, they can wholesale to whoever they want or cash deal, you know, whatever. That 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 is all kind of inconsequential. However, we do typically work. I mean, I've gotten a lot of cash deals from my acquisitions team because, you know, because we do have the buying power. We are able to buy these houses with cash and turn around and flip them. And so, you know, all the better for them to not have to go out and find that buyer's list that everybody is always looking for to just know, hey, this guy that I'm working with every day, all day already uh, would be the one that's going to buy this property. And then we'll partner up on profits there or we will buy it from them as a wholesale. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an interesting, you know, model is to empower other people to go and, you know, work with you. And you're not just, mm -hmm. I mean, you're training them, which is helping them with their future. And it obviously helps with your business. And it's right. Like, that, one of my favorite things about the whole idea of subject to, and, and along with lease options too, that I love that it's, it, you can structure them in such a win, 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 win way. Like <laughs> more than almost any other strategy out there, every party can benefit if you do it correctly. And, right. Uh, if you, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's correctly. So uh, I'm definitely a big fan. And, I mean, another thing too, is a lot of people might think they might listen to the show and think, you know, well, I don't, I don't want to do a hundred houses, you know, a year of subject to, I don't want to be, you know, do this full time. But the thing I think is important is to, to pick up on these skills They're like tools in a toolbox, right? So you set out marketing, you do whatever you do to get deals. I mean, I throw away nine out of 10 deals that I get because I'm not a subject to investor. I don't, I don't focus on that area, but I should at least consider it. And I, I need to do more of that because yeah, why am I throwing these deals away when I could actually find a use for them? And, and well, and that that realization is exactly why we work with so many wholesalers, because the way that we structure it with wholesalers is they literally just shoot us a name and a number mm -hmm. and we take it from there. And then closing day comes and they get a check in the mail. That's cool. You know, so for that, those yeah. nine out of 10 people that you're throwing away, that's a pretty sweet way to pay for your marketing budget. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. Well, so so we need we all need to find our grants, uh, grant camps, or or become the <laughs> grant camp for our areas, and and uh, you know, fill that gap. There you go. There that's you go. great. Well, cool. That's great. Well, why don't we move on to our favorite sound effect of the show, the manly sound effect? It's time for the fire round. All right, they, they fire around. These questions come from the Bigger Pockets forum. So, Grant, I know you're pretty active on there, so you've probably seen some of these and maybe even jumped into those conversations. But uh, for the you know benefit of everyone listening, let's fire them at you. Number one, do you think a college education is beneficial for investing in real estate? Um, I would answer that with no. I, I don't have a college education. I did not go to college. I've, I've taken courses here and there that I felt were applicable for what, you know, I took a Spanish course and whenever I was working at, IT, I took some programming courses, but that's all I've done in, in college. I think more than a college education, 
is uh, uh, determination and just going out there with a bullheaded <laughs> viewpoint of, hey, I know that this is something that can get done. I'm going to get it done. Yeah, yeah. Well, under under the uh, discussion of education here, what's the factor that makes the difference in, in say, a good, uh, in your case, uh, acquisition specialist you know, or student of some sort, somebody that a mentor would want to take under their wing, for example, on a bad one? So, you know, you, you have these guys who come in and, and some say, yeah, well, train me, train me. And you say, well, yeah, you don't have the chops. What What is that? What I'm looking for in people is somebody that's not afraid to go out and just do it. Um, but somebody who's also not afraid to say, I don't know the answer to that. Right. So my, my number one candidate is somebody who will ask the questions, but then isn't afraid to go act. Right. So actually, and this would be a good time for, for that story. I mean, uh, uh, like I said, you know, third quarter of last year is when I started doing the acquisitions team members, when it came time for me to scale triple equity into a larger uh, larger operation because of the acquisitions members and, and, you know, and I've since hired a W2 employee and those kinds of things. Um, I needed to bring on another partner. And, you know, the first place that I looked was who's performing in my acquisitions team. And so now, uh, Ronnie Walker is our third partner in triple equity who started out as an acquisitions team member, but he was the guy that he would call me. He would say, Hey man, I've got this deal. What am I supposed to do with it? I would walking through it and then he would go get it done you know he wasn't afraid to talk to the buyer he wasn't afraid to keep calling me if i wasn't able to answer the phone call he would call back he would shoot me an email and that's what you need to do to to get this to work yeah that's good. gotcha that's good gotcha good. all right so so if you uh well that was that was my question so i think it's yours <laughs> i i got i got excited and was going to take brandon's question <laughs> that's all right i don't mind you know i share all right if i were to if you were to give one tip to someone just starting out regarding partnerships. This actually flows really nicely from the last one. Regarding partnerships, what would it be? Somebody looking for a partner, uh, what would you be your best tip? It would be to know your strength and use it. Um, too many people that I see go out there and say, and they they look in their mind and they say, well, in order to be a good investor, I need to have um, you know money or I need to have uh, the knowledge or I need to have this. And they forget to say, what do I have and how can I use that to become a good investor? So most of the most of the people out there and one of the things that Ronnie did is he looked at himself and he said, what do I have? He had the ability to follow up with people and stay consistent. He had time. And so he brought those and leveraged them with me and said, hey, I've got time and I'll follow up on leads. What can we do together? Sounds right? great. That's really good. Yeah. That's really good. Can I go now? You can go now. I'm done. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. All right. So do you have any suggestions uh, for, for part-time or on-the-side income sources while you're first starting out in uh, real estate? Yeah. I mean, the, the subject two thing was my, was my side job uh, at, at first. I mean, that, that was what I was doing. It made it to where I had to spend little to no money of my own to get the deal done. I spent a little bit in marketing budget. Um, I used Jerry Puckett, who's a user on here, uh, for yep. my first marketing deals. He was able to put some great lists together for me and, and really get things going there. So I do recommend talking to him, but set things up. Like, so when I was working full time, I talked to Jerry, got him to handle the, the marketing. I, uh, started with, um, an answering service. So my phone number routed to an answering service and they would take all of the calls. They created the email. They shot the email to me. I would take my quote unquote cigarette break 
even though I didn't smoke. And then I would go and follow up on some uh, some of those calls and get the deal done, set up a, an appointment. You know, most of these sellers are going to work nine to five anyway, so their appointments are going to have to be after work in the first place. So don't let the fact that you're working a job hinder this kind of stuff when you can set up a virtual assistant and, you know, outsource these things to get it done. Cool. Nice. That's great nice. advice. Great. Yours? No, it's mine. No, that was that no. was that was mine. But thank you. You know what? You, you could have taken it so <laughs> yeah, let easily, me, let Josh. Me ta- let me take this one because you know, I mean, you know, you gave me an opportunity, and I feel yeah, ramble, ramble. so blessed. Take, take it, take it. All right. I my my question is: Do you ultimately recommend people get their mortgage license, real estate license, or neither? That's that's a hard question to answer. It really is because it is such a case by case basis. You really have to look at your scenario. And don't look at the license as the answer. Look at the license as a step and say, does my ladder go higher if I get this license? And if the answer is yes, then get it. If the answer is, well, I get this license and then I've got to have a license, then don't get it. There's no need for it. Okay. So in my case, in my scenario, we were churning and burning a ton of owner financed deals. I'm having to pay out money to another RMLO and I saw a market opportunity. So I took it. I became licensed and that has since stepped things up for us and we've really grown there. But there was never a need for me to become a real estate agent because I was, I'm not working off of MLS. I'm not taking any deals down there. I'm not selling any deals down there. So it's not, there was no need for that. All right, Maverick. Good. Goose, are you going to churn what? and burn? <laughs> churn and burn, baby. Wasn't that a, a, a Top Gun reference? I have no idea what you're talking about. Last question of the fire round for me. <laughs> Do you not know Top Gun the movie? I have not watched Top Gun the movie. Oh, I thought you just didn't know it. No, I just, well, that too, but I don't, I don't, I've never watched Top Gun. It's on my list of movies to watch, you know, yeah, there you I'll go. get there. All right. Do you have a suggested software to help organize your real estate business? Absolutely. Podio. Podio.com is, really? is excellent. If you guys have not uh, looked at using something of that sort, you should. Um, it's an excellent way to stay organized. Some of their, their views that you're able to use there are fantastic. You can hook up with, uh, you know, we hook up with a lot of our wholesalers that have patio and they're able to just send us leads directly out of there. Um, so we've already got pictures, we've already got everything. They just say, Hey, share this with grant and everything pops over to us. So fascinating. Yeah, that's great. We, we, we've tested podio as podio, sorry, as as I would call it, but the uh, the gentleman with his pinky out over here, correcting I've been testing patio lately, and it's going quite well. Oh, yeah, I'll test that patio thing. Yeah, that's that redneck thing, man. Uh, So, yeah, listen, I just lost half my audience. Yep. (laughs) Uh, No, I've tested it. I I mean, I think it's it's all right. We haven't fully figured out how to best use it for, for... for our our needs, but but I think sure. that the UI is pretty good. I'm I'm uh, I, I encourage people to check it out as well. Absolutely, and for a free software too. That's the other oh, thing. Oh yeah, I'm cheap, and I like free softwares. And <laughs> when they can offer me a benefit for being no money, that's a good day. Them cheap softwares is real good for my <laughs> business. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, Grant, so we really thank you. Lots of lots of good topics. But uh, before we move on, before we get out of here, let, let's get to the famous four here. And uh, with that. Famous Four. All right. So Famous Four, uh, these, these are the questions we ask everybody. And, uh, and hopefully you've prepared an uh, adequate answer. <laughs> first question. Now I'm, now I'm being graded over here. <laughs> C-. First, C-. Minus. First, 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 depends on your choices. Uh, first question is, what is your favorite real estate book? Um, you know, I'm such a non-reader 
Uh, I actually don't. I, I think the only two books, and I, and I say this literally, the only two books that I've probably ever read, including school, would be Rich, Pet, Rich Dad, Poor Dad and <laughs> the Bible. I think oh. those are probably the only two books I've ever gotten. Through. There you go. So um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was great. I also actually really liked The Millionaire Next Door. I, I got, you know. You halfway read it. I halfway read it, but I really liked some of the uh, uh, just principles behind it. And I, I, I'm I'm a nerd on studies. I like seeing studies and actual numbers go behind things. So that was really interesting to see. So you're saying Dodd Frank wasn't your favorite book of all time? That was not my favorite book. If of you all could time. call it a that book, is... I don't know what you call it, but encyclopedia, <laughs> Bill. Right. All right. Cool. Well, uh, I guess then that kind of overlaps with our second question. But do you have a favorite business book? Yeah, again, I, I just I'm not a big, you know, and, and here's the thing. It's not that I hate reading. <laughs> I'm just I'm not a big book reader. I learn uh, through things like bigger pockets. I learn through things like uh, like, uh, you know, reddit.com has a has a real estate subreddit in there, um, which is not largely friendly to investors, but it's still there and there's still, you know, information to be had. So I'm one of those that I go out and I pick up bits and pieces here and there. Um, and and that's really where it comes from. And I ask questions, questions to the people that know what they're doing. So I I can't answer a, a favorite business book, but I'll say Bigger Pockets for you. How about there that? Go. That's a good book. <laughs> the best, very best good business book. book right there. It, it might have to be. All right. So what about hobbies? What do you do for fun while you're not doing 7,000 deals a year? And, and Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and, and on what time, right? It's a, <laughs> um, You know, I, I play guitar. I play guitar for my church and and uh, do that on the weekends. Me I really too. enjoy that. Oh, oh yeah. boy. You yeah, guys could do the, the bigger pockets. Let's get the Kumbaya going here. There we <laughs> go. <laughs> All right, moving on. What else do you do? Yeah, so, no, I, sorry, I don't have the talents that you two guys apparently have to, not apparently. to play well, you try an instrument. <laughs> oh my goodness, this has devolved seriously. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I, you know I like doing that. I like uh, you know we have uh, we have a group of our friends over every week. Um, it's really hard. It, I, I said it half jokingly. It is really hard to find time. I mean, this is a 12 to 14 hour day, six to seven days a week business. Um, I'm not that guy that that sometimes comes on and says, hey, I'm in here for financial freedom and I get to sit on the beach all day and just make money. That's not <laughs> how this works for me. You know, we I do work 12 plus hours a day. So, um, you know, we kind of plan and, and every week we have friends over and we during Game of Thrones seasons, we'll watch the yes. Game of Thrones night and cook a big meal and just kind of hang out there. And what's and Game of Thrones? Oh, come on. <laughs> It's a cartoon. Oh, cool. <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll get to see it someday. Yeah, maybe I'll someday. tell you this much. Just fall in love with every character you ever meet. Yes. I've, I've fallen in love with the two that I'm on the air with right now. <laughs> you characters, you. Thank All you. Right. All right, final so, question. Final question. Who is your favorite Game of Thrones character? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Seriously, right that here. is not the final what? question, Brandon. <laughs> okay, final question. What do you think is the thing that sets apart successful investors from those who give up and fail? Um, stupidity, <laughs> forgetfulness, <laughs> being able to forget Jeez. your failures. Uh, you know, that, that's one of the things that I, I don't, I don't believe in failures. I believe in learning experiences. Right. And, yep. and I think that a lot of people get wrapped up in uh, if something doesn't go the way that they expected, that it's a failure and they're done with it and they don't want to do that again. So, I think the successful investors that I've ever known are the ones who uh, can just move on with it and who are bullheaded and get out there and actually act versus just get into that learning loop and be afraid of uh, being afraid of actually succeeding. So, um, you know, just kind of that that 
ability to act when it's time to act and and learn when it's time to learn and just forget what's gone wrong and only focus on what's going right and move forward. Well, don't forget. Learn from yeah. the experience, yeah. I should say. I got you. Oh, let me let me forget and do it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. All right, man. Well, listen, it's it's been a real pleasure. Uh where where can people find out more information about you? Um, you can go to my website, either texaspridelending.com or uh tripleequity.net, and you can always email us at mail at tripleequity.net, and that'll Ooh. make sure that we can get back with you on on anything that you've got questions about. Prepare for the onslaught. I'm ready. <laughs> there you go. And 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 also uh presumably you've got a profile over yeah, on that bigger pockets. Sorry, so, I should yeah. mention that. Bigger pockets is a great way to get a hold of me too. You can message me on there as well and we can go back and forth there. All right, cool. And uh otherwise, just for those listening, Grant, uh I'm I'm gonna ask the question. You are not an attorney, is that correct? I am not an attorney. All right. Is- so Grant is not giving out legal advice in this show, and and I uh am certainly not giving out legal advice, nor is Brandon. So we, we definitely encourage you I can to- get fashion tips though. <laughs> no, you can't. That's probably video. a bad idea. <laughs> Taking fashion now. tips from Brandon. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. uh I mean, I, I, because we do cover some, some heavy topics here, uh, that, that, uh, you know, none of us purport to be lawyers and, and I definitely encourage anytime there's anything that you're curious about, particularly in real estate, uh, to have a, a, uh, a good real estate attorney on your team and, and pass everything, everything past them. So don't, you know, don't just assume that, the information you're getting anywhere is, is, is correct. Always pass it through to your attorney because that's going to be your CYA. So, and I can't agree with that more. That's actually why my first partner was a real estate attorney. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that you've got it. You've got to consult with an attorney that knows what's going on in that topic. Yeah. Smart. Grant, listen, thanks so much. We appreciate it. And, uh, for anybody listening, you can check out the show notes on this episode at biggerpockets.com slash show 70. Otherwise, you know, jump in, get involved in bigger pockets, join us, participate, engage, read up, and and uh, you know, just do some learning, do some networking, and and build your business. That's what we're here for. Otherwise, of course, we'll we'll uh, see you out on the other social nets, the Facebooks and Twitters and G pluses. Interact and join us there. And uh, until next show, we'll see you. I'm Josh Dorkin, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. Yeah, there you I'll go. Get there. All right, do you have a suggested? Do you have a suggested? <laughs> let me try this Speech one more therapy. time yeah all right do, <laughs> do you have a suggested software to help organize your real estate there's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the bigger pockets community with just a 3.5 percent down payment you can own up to four different units think about it if you house hack and live in one of the units you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? 
All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming small multifamily bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leka Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the small multifamily bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.